Hello, and welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Benny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to episode 39 of Elder Health Connection. I am your host, Caroline Morris, and today we are talking about realistic health behavior change for 2023. Happy New Year to all of you listening. Um, And if you're listening in the future, I hope 2023 has been a good year for you. I thought this would be a good topic to kick off the new year is this is often the time we start thinking about resolutions or our health a little bit more after the holiday season, behavior change, how we want the upcoming year to look. So I will use the trans-theoretical model of behavior change today to help guide our discussion. This is something that I have been teaching on a lot lately in my work with training other healthcare professionals. I found it useful in my patient interactions. I've also found it useful in thinking about my own behavior changes. So for those of you listening, whether you are looking to make a change in yourself or help to guide someone else through a change process, I find this model to be the most helpful of the ones out there to understand how change unfolds and to minimize frustrations when it seems to be stalled. So this model is a combination of previous change models that was introduced in the early 90s by Prochaska, and I will link to some of the foundational articles for you as well. It's a combination of theories from psychotherapy literature and behavior change literature. And it was originally studied for people who were trying to quit smoking, and then it became more broadly applied to additional health behaviors. We will go through these stages a lot, so I hope the repetition will help you to to learn and know them well. But for a quick overview, there are six stages of change in the trans-theoretical model. The first stage is called pre-contemplation, and that's when there's no intention to change. The person is unaware or underaware of a problem that needs to change. They are not thinking about changing. I find this one to be easier to identify in other people and harder to identify in ourselves because it can be tricky to identify something we're not thinking about. The next stage is contemplation. So this is where we are starting to think about a change. The person is aware of a problem. 
and seriously thinking about change, but has not committed to take action. So that's an important piece is there's no commitment to the change yet, even though there is thinking about it. The third stage is preparation. And this is where the person is intending to take action and small steps are taking, but it's not not yet enough to be considered an effective action. The fourth stage is action. And this stage is where people are taking meaningful action towards the change. But it's important to note that no change has actually occurred yet because the work of maintaining that change hasn't yet happened. The fifth stage is maintenance. This is where the person is working to prevent a relapse. A change has actually occurred at this point and it lasts six months on. Some later literature says it's six months to five years as a typical time period. Um, also, there's for certain health behaviors, there is no time limit on the maintenance phase. It becomes a lifelong stage at that point. The final stage, the sixth stage, is called termination. And this is where the person is free from the long-standing problems. So the change has been fully completed and they're no longer in the cycle. And this isn't realistic for everyone. Termination is the official name in the trans theoretical model. I prefer transformation in my own thought process about change where the, the behavior has been transformed as opposed to terminated. You can choose what you like best. There is also a another factor in this model that's not really its own phase, but that is a relapse where someone has been in the maintenance phase and then they return to a previous stage somewhere along the cycle of change. What I like about these six separate stages is that it breaks it down for me as to what are realistic goals. So really, the most important thing is just to move to the next phase of change or stage of change. So if you're thinking about a change but not taking action, you're in contemplation, the next step is to move to preparation. You don't have to go all the way to a big action at that point. So it would be starting to commit to the change. It would be taking small steps in service of that change. But at that point, a big, massive action isn't yet required. I think that can also be helpful for those of us who are working on guiding change and other people that if someone is just thinking about a change but not committed to it, we don't need to force action on them. We just need to help them decide whether they're going to make the change or not. So how do we do that? in? The pre-contemplation and contemplation stages where, again, there's no commitment to change and pre-contemplation, we're not even really. So how do we bring about a change? In the pre-contemplation stage where the person is not thinking about making a change, maybe they're unaware of the need to change or not fully aware of the need, our job at this point is education and consciousness raising. So understanding why the change is needed, the harms of continuing life as it is now. And so this can be accomplished through 
public health campaigns, educational materials, storytelling, and starting to reevaluate our own environment that we live in. If you are helping someone else to change, it can be providing education, reading materials, stories of people like them that they might resonate with. If you are looking for this in yourself, and again, it's a little bit harder to identify when we're in pre-contemplation ourselves, but this could be around doing your research on a topic, questioning your assumptions about the, the topic or change, and thinking about the way you've been living with living your life and your current habits and questioning if they're serving you or not. If someone is in the contemplation phase of change, this is where we are thinking about changing but not committed to it, self-reevaluation can be a helpful process to move to preparation. So this is, again, where we're thinking, what do I want to commit to or not? The skill of motivational interviewing, that process can be very helpful if we're the ones looking to guide others, which is another topic I've been teaching on a bit lately in my work with healthcare professionals. And that's basically a way of having a conversation with someone so that they identify their own reasons for changing, as opposed to us trying to persuade someone to change. And I think we've all had that experience of, you know, seeing so clearly what someone else needs to do, but we just can't get them to do it. Or we have people who try to persuade us or argue for change in us in different ways, and we are very much resistant to it. And so motivational interviewing is a way of having those conversations differently so that we draw out what the person who is completing the change we draw out their own good reasons for changing and their own plans as opposed to directing or dictating what they do. And this is actually a pretty challenging skill. It's a very simple approach, but challenging to do because it requires a lot of self-regulation of the person trying to guide the change. If someone is in the preparation stage, so they're starting to make small actions towards the change, they have committed to making a change. Here, what tends to be useful is reducing as many barriers to changing as possible and increasing the number of facilitators to changing. So basically making it as easy as possible for the change to happen. When people are in the action and maintenance stages of change where they are actually taking dedicated action towards the change and they've been doing it for some time, this is again where we need to make sure that change is sustainable and that involves reducing the number of barriers to change. So there might be some contingency plans there might be relationships that help the person to maintain the change. There may be some different conditioning or training needed to help us with our triggers for our old habits that we're looking to change and guide us towards our new habits. So I will give you an example in myself of a behavior that I did successfully move all the way through to transformation. And it's kind of a, a small and silly example, but I think it does 
illustrate these stages of change and the different steps that were needed. So the behavior was drinking Diet Coke. It was something that I had become quite addicted to by the time I was in my early 20s. I had started drinking it consistently when I was an undergrad, and then it became much more frequent when I was in physical therapy school. And when I first started drinking Diet Coke, I thought, you know, it's got zero calories. That means it's not that bad for me. It's probably not the best thing I could drink, but it's better than drinking a regular soda. There's nothing I really need to do to change this behavior. It helps me study. It keeps me awake during class. So at that point, I would consider myself in pre-contemplation where I had no intention to change my Diet Coke consumption. I didn't think there was a problem with it. I wasn't thinking about it. Then I would say over the course of a couple years, there was some consciousness raising around some of the problems with Diet Coke. So one of the things I learned through researching different topics in PT school was that the artificial sweeteners in Diet Coke, at that time they were being considered as being linked to developing Parkinson's disease and that they were actually not very helpful for regulating blood sugar. They could still increase your blood sugar and that drinking diet soda didn't really lead to weight loss either. So some of the reasons I thought the diet soda might be beneficial turned out maybe they weren't so beneficial. And then I started learning about potential long-term health consequences. But I was in this emerging contemplation stage for a long time. I really had no no desire to change my consumption habits. I figured I was young, I was in school, and this wasn't the time I needed to change. Then after a while, I started noticing that I was getting stomach pains with drinking the Diet Coke. So after I would drink it, I would get cramps and pains in my belly, especially if I drank it on an empty stomach or later in the day. I was having trouble sleeping at night if I was drinking the Diet Coke too late in the day. And I would say at this point, I was moving more towards the contemplation stage of, is this behavior really serving me? Is drinking Diet Coke worth all of these these side effects and potential harms? And as I went through PT school and especially into my third year, I actually started getting really unwell. I wouldn't say I was ill, but I was not functioning well. I had gained a significant amount of weight. I developed extreme fatigue to the point where if I went to the grocery store, I had to take a nap afterwards. And this was at the age of 24 with no diagnosed health conditions at the time. And so I started thinking about my health in more broad terms and about things that might need to change. But again, over that fall semester, I didn't know what needed to change or how to do it. And then when I was on the winter break in that third year, which is the final year of PT school, I saw an episode of the Dr. Oz show of all things with a a woman named Lynn Janae Recitas presenting on her nutrition plan and the 
dramatic effects it was having for people and how the whole premise was on your personal chemistry and the way foods react to your body and not calorie counting. So that resonated with me after having a lot of frustration and lack of success with calorie counting in the past. I think some of that is actually what what led to my decline in that third year of school was some things I was doing the summer before with calorie restriction and really poor nutrition. And so at that point, I started preparing to make a change. I bought the book that was being promoted on that show. I read through the whole book. I started meal planning, grocery shopping, and getting ready to make a change with what I put in my body. So there would be our preparation stage. So I was choosing to take an action. I was doing small actions. But as many of us know, just reading a cookbook doesn't lead to nutrition change. It is a step in the right direction, but we can't really call it action yet. So then in I would say early to mid-January of that year, I started taking action where I followed this nutrition plan for, I think it was a 20-day plan. I had support from my family with the cooking and meal prep and shopping. I was in a new environment. At that time, I was doing a clinical rotation, so I didn't have um, a lot of my triggers for my old habits because it was a completely new environment. And to clarify, in that plan, there was no place for diet soda in there, so I was not drinking anything at all. And I started to feel a lot better, and I don't think it was just the Diet Coke piece. I think it was the overall nutrition that was helping me to feel better, and that was really my first introduction into um, the power of nutrition, of personalized nutrition, and functional medicine concepts. When I later returned to school after my clinical rotation, we came back to some special topics classes and we had comprehensive exams. So written and practical exams for the whole curriculum of PT school to help us prepare for the board exams. So at that point, I would say I was in still in the action phase because it had only been about three months of of change. And my old triggers for drinking Diet Coke came back. I needed to do a lot of studying. I was back in the school setting. I needed to stay awake and alert while sitting all day. So I had, I went back to drinking Diet Coke and the first one I had had such an enormous reaction for me where I had a headache for 48 hours afterwards, slept terribly, really didn't learn anything. And that was enough of a bad reaction to keep me from returning to that behavior again. So that last Diet Coke was in April of 2013. So almost 10 years ago, and at this point, I can confidently say that behavior has been transformed because I have no desire to drink Diet Coke. It doesn't matter what stressors or triggers are around me now. That's not something that I'm looking 
to do or feel that I'm at risk for falling back to. Now, the other dietary changes I made in that time, I would say I was still cycling through maintenance and previous stages with that. Those have been harder for me to fully transform my entire nutrition and diet approach. It's I feel it's more complicated. There's more more work to be done there. So again, to summarize that specific change process, if we're looking just at the Diet Coke, I went from thinking it was good to drink Diet Coke to thinking maybe there is a problem with drinking Diet Coke, but it's not going to affect me now, so I'm not going to do anything about it. But then thinking, well, I actually don't feel so good when I drink Diet Coke. Then learning more about health and nutrition in general, realizing that the way I was doing it was leading to a lot of downsides of extreme fatigue and difficulty concentrating. Then preparing for change by reading, researching, meal planning, shopping, food prep, action stage of carrying out that nutrition plan, which included just drinking water and tea. I had one relapse of drinking the Diet Coke when I returned to the school environment, and then since then have not had any transforming the behavior since it's been longer than five years. Now, if we look at it through the lens of nutrition in general, I would say I went from pre-contemplation of not thinking nutrition had much of a role at all in health or food, starting to think about it, hearing a little bit more, learning more about nutrition, but no intention to change what I ate or drank, then starting to realize that, again, that I really didn't feel well, that at my age, my health was way too poor with no no overt reason for it. And again, preparing to change through research and preparations, changing environments, taking action on the change, which was supported again by the new environment, by family members helping and supporting me, and by retraining my body and what my food preferences were. Now it's, again, it's been nearly 10 years since I started the change, and I would say I am still very much in maintenance phase on this with several several relapses related to nutrition in general, though not back to the complete beginning. I still have learned from each one, knowing what what works better for my body or not, how I can feel my best based on the principles I've learned in the past. I have a better understanding of what are barriers to me carrying out my nutrition goals. I have a better understanding of what are facilitators or things that help me to carry out my goals. So even when we do relapse, not all is lost. We're always learning from the process. So as you think about changes you would like to make for 2023, I would start with identifying, of course, what's important to you and then spending a little bit of time reflecting on what stage of change you you think you're currently in and recognizing that even if you're not taking an action, you're still in a stage of change and being kind to yourself no matter what stage you're in. 
and then starting to help yourself move to the next stage of change. If you're in a supporting role for someone else who's trying to change, again, it can be helpful to tease out what stage you think they're in at the time and then support them in moving to the next stage in a way that is aligned with their goals and their reasons for change and not imposing ourselves onto them. For those of you looking to help change in others, I will link to my courses on these topics. They are geared more for the healthcare professional, but I hope to do some for the general public soon. If you're looking to change in yourself and would like that helping relationship or someone trained in motivational interviewing to help you along, please do schedule an intro phone call with me and we can talk through your change process and see what what may be most beneficial for you can be very helpful to have someone else on your team with us thank you so much for joining me today we will be back every other monday with new episodes on the elder health connection podcast Please do subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a review. It helps us to reach more people. So if you found value in this episode, please do pay it forward by passing it along to someone else. And I wish you a happy and healthy 2023. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.